you're at First Covenant Church, if you didn't figure this out already. I'm Pastor Evan. We are disciples who make disciples at First Covenant Church. We're glad that you're here online, at home, and in person in the room. Um, here's an interesting just question for those you can comment online. Uh, but as we're talking about the prodigal son uh, this morning, the lost son, there's a moment when he wakes up that's pivotal to the whole story. So the question is, do you like to wake up? Are you a morning person, a night person, or somewhere in between? Like I'm one of those weirdos who's a little of both. Uh, tell your neighbor what you are, type it on there, and why, if you're typing it online, why are you a morning or a night person, or why do you like morning or night better, if you can figure that out. A couple things to note, Good Friday service is coming up on Good Friday this year. It'll be a six o'clock service. It will be both in person and online, um, and it will just to kind of whet your appetite ahead of time. Uh, we'll go through all of Holy Week and even serve communion together um, as we do currently right now. So it'll, it'll be Good Friday with some Maundy Thursday combined in it. But I just want you to look ahead to that because uh, we're in the season of Lent, but uh, that, that moment of waking up comes on Good Friday in many ways too. And so that day is coming. Um, as Garrett already pointed out, there's a Wednesday night book study that I encourage you to check out. There's Sunday school going on right now. There's Wednesday night uh, youth stuff still going on and some Friday night stuff. So even if you're not a part of any of those things, can you pray for those people? Pray for when you see those you know, things come through on the, the emails and, and even texts, if you're not responding to them, that's fine. Pray for the people that are involved in all of those and consider how you can get involved. Now, I'm gonna invite RJ up. And we're gonna do a short interview here to find out what's going on at camp. One thing that we typically do when we have camp people come is they have a table. There's no table this year. We've got RJ, he's magnanimous enough on his own. And we usually have a, a potato bar fundraiser. So we actually had potatoes at our, baked potatoes at our house this week and celebrated Camp Sunday ahead of time. I encourage you this week, uh, find a way to celebrate uh, our Covenant Cedars crew and the kids that are gonna go and have a meal this week where you actually pray for our campers and the workers at Covenant Cedars. Um, if you wanna donate to camp as a result of that, great, but pray for them first and foremost as they get ready for the summer, because even now God's working on hearts and his Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of those campers and of the, the people that will work there with those campers, the staff. So RJ, let me ask you three questions that you've never seen before this week until about Thursday. Go for it. What is the theme for summer camp this summer? Uh, so this year our theme is dwell, which comes from Psalm 23. This year has been a little bit of a struggle. It's been a little different and in this year, uh, maybe not for you, but at least for me, sometimes we can question or, or struggle with, is God good? I, is, he, is he good? Is he taking things from us? Is it some, some sort of punishment for anything? And we need to, need, need to be reminded that God is actually our good shepherd. And I love that we sang uh, a reckless love because he is our reckless good shepherd. And he leaves the flock, he leaves the 99 to find the one. He guides us toward abundant life. He, he, he guards us from anything that gets in our way, and he gives us everlasting life with him. And, and that is our hope, that is our promise. And this summer, that is all that we are learning about is our good shepherd and his reckless love. All right. Thank you, RJ. What then are two really exciting things that are happening at Cedars right now, aside from the theme? Two things. Uh, so the first thing, most of our staff has been uh, not there for the past nine months, and that has been an incredibly difficult season for all of us. But tomorrow, uh, the last two members of our staff will come back to full-time work. And so we'll be at full strength tomorrow. All right. And then the second big thing is that uh, we were closed through all of 2020. 
And the last two weekends, we were able to serve our first two groups in a year and a half. And that is, that is a huge blessing for us and keeps us busy. Um, I'm adding a third really quickly uh, because this impacts my area of camp. I got married uh, last month, so that's pretty All sweet right. for me personally. Do you, well, Julie, do you want to give them nicknames too this morning? Yeah, I was really rooting for Babika. I know. <laughs> um, okay. How, thirdly, and we'll do this in just a moment, how can we pray for the staff and the ministry? Uh, man, th- this season has been incredibly difficult. Uh, we, you know, not, have, not having jobs was tough. Not having campers was incredibly dip- difficult. Not being able to serve um, our guests for, again, almost a year and a half has been very, very tough. Uh, and, and so as we are moving forward this summer for, for camp, uh, we, we haven't been able to have a whole summer of, you know, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, we're kind of going by the seat of our pants trying to figure out how do we make camp happen as safely as possible for, for our campers, for our guests, for our staff. Uh, and trying to get people to volunteer, trying to get people uh, to work there all summer, giving us wisdom, give, giving us discernment. So if you guys be praying for, for God to, to provide us not only with people and the manpower, but also with the wisdom and discernment to, to make those plans possible for anyone to come to camp uh, this summer. Hmm. Yep, let's pray for you right now. Thank you, RJ. Lord, I pray for the, the ministry of Covenant Cedars. It's been such a blessing to so many in our congregation, and not simply in, in a way that inspires us, but God, you have changed lives by the power of your Holy Spirit at Covenant Cedars, and you continue to do so, and even now you're changing lives, and we don't know which lives yet, but Lord, pave the way help the staff understand uh, how you've already gone before them to make it possible to do ministry this summer. Uh, we know that sometimes what we see as barriers are opportunities to you, Lord. So help us see the opportunities that are ahead. Uh, help us till the soil, help the staff till the soil. And Lord, right now, the campers and potential campers that are in our midst, help us encourage them to get out to Covenant Cedars so that they can encounter your life-changing word and your son, Jesus, who changes their lives. Amen. All right, thank you, guys. Thank you, RJ. For those of you in the room that got to watch me take off my mask, it looked as hard as it was. <laughs> Greetings to everybody again at home in the room. I'm going to invite everybody to find Luke 15 as we continue looking at uh, the story of the sons and their father. As Garrett pointed out this morning, as you're finding that, um, In Luke 15, we're going to look at all of it over the course of the series, but in Luke 15, you have uh, three stories of lost things. You have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then we just don't want to get this wrong. There are two lost sons in this story. It's not just one lost son and one son who's a little bitter. They're both lost in this story. Right? The both sons, and we're going to look at the younger one this week and the older one next week, but both sons in the story are selfish. Both sons in the story desire their own interests at the expense of the father. 
That's who we're talking about. And so we're going to look at the relationship of the younger son to the father today. Luke 15, we'll look at just 11 through 24. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. As we look at this son, we cracked open just barely last week the theme of freedom. And the question we could ask is, how free are we? How free is the son, and how free are we in this world that we live in? There's this episode of the Twilight Zone that was the, one of the more uh, loved episodes, uh, old black and white Twilight Zone, the original, which the black and white makes it even more twilighty. Uh, it's wonderful to watch. And... Um, this, the guy has big, thick glasses. It's a post-apocalyptic world that he's living in. He can only see and read with the big, thick glasses. And he just wants everybody to leave him alone so he can sit and read his books. That's all he wants is time to read his books. And, this, and the show ends with him sitting on the steps of the library. Everybody is gone in the world, in this post-apocalyptic world. It's just him and a pile of books. And his glasses fall off his face and break, irreparable. And now he can no longer read his books. How free are we? Sometimes we think we're more free than we are. We want to be our own bosses, right? We want to be masters of our own destiny, or at least think we're masters of our own home or something like that. And I think that desire to be free of all constraints and master of whatever it is that I can be master of is very strong today. Probably it turned up to as high as it can go for so many people. But if you look at the younger brother, we can see that he's actually not as free as he thinks he is, nor are we actually uh, any more free than he thinks he is either. What does freedom look like for the younger son? As we read the story, we see that his freedom looks like, Father, give me my stuff. That's where it all starts. Give me what's mine, Dad. And then he goes and spends it recklessly, we see. The prodigal, that's what that means as Garrett pointed out. Now, I, I was working with a, a kid a, quite a number of years ago who had lived this kind of life and uh, had spent lavishly on mostly uh, alcohol, but also on drugs. 
And he said the remarkable thing is uh, once he decided to stop spending money on alcohol and drugs, he no longer had any friends. Those two things seemed to dry up together. Of course, how much of a friend really were they? They were there for the fun. That's where he's at. And then famine hits, and he finds himself eating with the pigs. And scholar Daryl Bach points out this moment is a triple disgrace. It's hard to imagine how Jesus could make the story go any lower than this. You have a young Jewish man who's tending the pigs. That's an unclean animal. And if you notice, he's in a far country or a distant country doing this. So the owner of the pigs is probably a Gentile. He's working for a Gentile functionally as a slave. It's a triple disgrace to feed the pigs as a slave of a Gentile. He couldn't go any lower. Now, if you go back to the moment of freedom, we can kind of investigate a little bit of this freedom in verse 13. This is the moment, I think, where he feels most free. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. So let's just stop there. You can see it on the screen still. He got the stuff from his dad and obviously took a little time to figure out how to liquidate it or do something. How awkward was that time probably in the home as he's still there a little bit? That that must have been a tense time. But not long after that, he set off to a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. This is probably the moment where he felt the most free. It was the first moment that he walked away from the house with all the money in his pocket. And he's thinking, the world is my oyster, whatever term you want to use. Now he can walk out there. It's like when our dog gets out of the house, uh, if somebody accidentally leaves the gate open, right? There's freedom. And what does she do? She runs as fast as she can, wherever she can, right? There's no real destination in mind. I think she misuses her freedom in those moments. Then you find her three houses away sniffing bushes, and it's not hard to get her back. But there's this excitement, freedom, right? That's what he's feeling. Like the dog running out of the back gate. I made it. I'm out. Now, I want to investigate something about him in two different ways here at this moment. We could think, okay, so he experienced that freedom. And we could wonder to ourselves, what if, what if he would have been a little wiser and a little less reckless with his funds and still wanted to experience that freedom? And what if he would have invested it in something that provided a modest uh, return for his investment, right? We could wonder why, would he, why in the world would a guy like this leave the care of a loving father and the inheritance that was growing probably much quicker in order to do something like that, right? It wouldn't have been a sound strategy. He's living recklessly because he wants to live recklessly. He's experiencing the fullness of that, what he perceives to be freedom. And even Jesus points out somebody who's living apart from the father Apart from the vine, as Jesus would put it, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you're cut off from it, you're only good for firewood. If we're cut off from the Father, we're going to die on the vine is what's going to happen. Why would he leave that? It's not a sound strategy for him to do that. Now, how free is he really? I was talking a bunch of years ago to a young man who had just proclaimed himself an atheist at the age of 18. I've had many of these conversations. Um, And his major, he was entirely too smart for his own good, one of these kind. And his major beef, among others, was that it seems unfair that God would give us simply one lifetime to choose between heaven and hell. And that's it. Does that seem like enough time? And does that seem fair on the part of God? To which, and of course, this is a longer conversation, but to which I eventually just pointed out, you know, you say that, but it seems like it only took you 18 years to make the decision. To which he said, touche. 
But consider this further. He was using his mind, a God-given gift, and trying to use a logical argument with me and rational thought, a God-given gift, as we sat there and drank coffee with his arms and hands and mouth, God-given gifts and coffee too, a God-given gift, he was using all of those God-given gifts to do what with God? Reject God. That's exactly what the younger son is doing here too. He's misusing the father's stuff and resources. The theologian Helmut Thielicke says it this way. He says, there's one thing about this situation that he, the younger son, cannot overlook, but he does. And that is that everything he has came from his father. How free are we? It turns out that you either belong to God or you belong to the opposite of God, sin. We want to think there's neutral territory between those, but there's not. There's really not neutral territory between those two things. Everything in this world that is good was given by God, and everything that looks like it's not good is just a good thing turned on its head, perverted, misused. Right? If you put it in the terms of C.S. Lewis, who's simply using St. Augustine's thought, he says evil is a parasite, not an original thing. We can't invent evil. We can just misuse the good things God gave us. That's what we're doing when we sin. That's what evil is. It's just turning over God's good stuff and misusing his resources. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, starting at verse 15. Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey him from your heart, or come to obey him from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Skipping to verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the results to eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even in our perceived freedom, we misuse what the Father has given us. Paul makes it incredibly clear. You're either a slave to serve God, or you're a slave to misuse his stuff. There's not an in-between. Now, again, we could come back to this kind of objection I brought up at the beginning. You could say, okay, Pastor Evan, we already talked about what if he would have invested it and could have kind of made a parallel universe next to the Father or something like that, which doesn't really work. What if this young man would have had a change of heart? The prodigal living out in the foreign country and decides to start a new life in the foreign country, but now he's benevolent and kind because he spent it all and realized that that's just not going to work. What if he started over in that way? We could say three things about this objection that you've brought up. One, it's still the Father's stuff. It's still not really his stuff. He's still misusing what the Father gave. Two, he's estranged from the family. He's not a part of the family again. 
And Jesus even has words about this, about people who try and do this, who try and do good, great things in this world. Jesus says, wonderful, you're going to do all those things and you're going to come to me in the end and and you're going to say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things for the kingdom. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Why? Because you're estranged from the family. And the reason is the third objection we could, uh, thing we could bring up to the objection here. So it's the father stuff that he's using. He's estranged from the family. And if he's doing good things, loving things, and compassionate things in another land, they're only good, loving, and compassionate because they're measured against the father who is good, loving, and compassionate. He didn't define those terms. He's using terms that were already defined by the character of the father. That's how it is with us. When we are loving and compassionate and good, they're only loving and compassionate and good because they line up with God's character, which is the identification, the definition of what those things are. We are, even in our very words and actions, using things, using the Father's good stuff. But we can't do it estranged from the Father's family. Otherwise, we're misusing his stuff. Two moments come to play in the young son's life where he wakes up and decides to come back home. Verse 17, it seems like he's hit rock bottom. It says, when he came to his senses, and help me out if this isn't something we all need to do at regular intervals with God, right? When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. You would think the famine would have been enough, but it wasn't just the famine that did it and the fact that he was out of resources. He really hits rock bottom at the pig trough. That's where he hits the very end of things, right? He's trying to do this whole thing using the father's resources without the father. And have you hit these points in your life? Have you tried to do this whole life thing sometimes without God or by pushing God to the margins, right? So you you volunteer, you do good things for others, you give here and there, you tip when you get a latte, but you feel like whatever you do, you just don't quite have the physical, mental, and spiritual resources to just make it and you're worn out. God never intended for you and I to go alone in this life. God intended for us to be in communion with him and his family using his stuff in this world. And so as he's feeding the pigs at the pig trough, the slave of a Gentile, the only thing that could possibly keep him from coming home is pride. That's it. That's the only thing left that could stop him. His pride is cured at the pig trough. Brothers, sisters, and friends, how is your pride and what's your pig trough? What's the point at which you wake up or need to wake up? What are the things that hold you back from God and you realize, I'm feasting on this stuff that isn't even worth it and God's called me to so much more? We try and push God away in so many areas of our lives and maybe you're even in a point where you've You've just never quite entered into that relationship with God at all, and you're eating at the pig trough recognizing, you know what, it's time to wake up. So he hits rock bottom. That's one of the two things that brings him back. The second thing that brings him back is hope. As I kind of worked through this, that seemed to be the best word to fit with that. He recognizes that his father is a loving, compassionate father who will forgive him or at least potentially welcome him back in the home. He's got hope because he knows the character of the father. And the image of this welcoming father 
welcoming the Son home as an image of the restoration that's intended for us through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus wants us to see here. See, we are, whether we like to recognize it by default, often like the prodigal son here. We're often people who are using the Father's resources in a distant land estranged from the Father. And we can do it in different and, and uh, subtle ways, even as we draw close to God. But we often misuse the Father's resources in ways we don't even realize. But through Jesus, God has called us back home to be adopted into the family we were intended to be with from the beginning. That's what he's done through Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't want us to miss that. You see, we're adopted into that family not by our own effort, but by the Father's compassionate love through Jesus. Let's catch two bits of good news here as we draw this to a close. Verse 20, uh, we can see that the Father's compassion is faster than we expect. So verse 20, he got up, went to his father. We see that. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Good news here. The son walks, but the father runs. That's good news here. See, the father's compassion is faster than your pride and my pride. The Father's compassion is faster than your realization that you need the Father. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in a distant, far-off country, eating out of the pig trough, that's when God sent his Son to actually rescue us. Where do you need to wake up today and come home? Because we can start the walk, but the Father runs to meet us. Second bit of good news, verse 22 we covered the meaning of these last week, if you want to look at last week's sermon, but it says, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet. He, he calls him into the home and says, You're a son again. You're in the home. The good news here is you can come home before you clean up. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, Learn the house rules and then come into the house. He says, Come on in. You're welcome back in the home. I don't want to miss something important here, but welcome in. You're, you're welcome to come back home right now and be brought into the Father's home. The Father's compassion is faster than your realization that you don't know the family rules, but God called you in anyways. Let me give an example of this, because I know that's a confusing way to say it. Uh, you heard this morning in the children's message that at one point I lived in Canada. Actually, two times I've lived there. The first time... Um, I was a student in, uh, for my first year of college in Alberta, and for a week in February, the whole school went to the middle of Saskatchewan. I know, sounds dreamy, right? In the middle of February, it was maybe like, you know, I, it got to negative 20 or something. Basically, what had happened a couple weeks ago, it was normal there. And uh, so this other student and I are living in a host home just a few blocks away from the church we're working at. We're having dinner, I think, the first night with this family of five and these two college students. Um, and the, in Canada, it's still the tradition that when you walk into somebody's home, you take off your shoes. That's what you do. As a, countrywide, it pretty much happens. And um, this woman, then we're in this mother, she says, you know, I've heard, as she makes small talk, I've heard that in the States, people sometimes walk into the, shoe, uh, the house with their shoes on. And we said... Yeah, that happens. Yeah, some people do. Wait, on the carpet? 
Like she couldn't figure this out, that people would walk in on the carpet with their shoes. It's a house rule. There's not a house I've ever walked into in Canada where I questioned the house rule and said, you know what, this time I want to wear my shoes. Right? It's a house rule. When uh, Stephanie, my wife, and I have been leading the middle school youth group on Fridays, we carried over a house rule that Jennifer and Bevan, when they were leading it, did, which is, hey, we're not going to use the Lord's name in vain here. House rule. Nobody complains. Right? Seems pretty basic. Uh, many of you have house rules, right? Some of which are probably stated and some of which aren't stated, right? You, you have a decorative cup on the wall. You're not drinking out of the decorative cup. Maybe there's no smoking in the house. Don't use certain chairs at certain times, that kind of thing. You have house rules. People don't question the house rules. They come in, they live under the house rules, but they learn the house rules. The son is welcomed into the home before he's living fully like one of the family again. He's reinstated as a son even before that, but I want to point this out because this gets lost right now, even in our Christian environment right now. God will forgive your past if you let him in, but he makes you part of his family so you won't return to the pig trough again. We don't get to live the pig trough rules in the house of the Lord, though. That's not what we're doing. We're coming in, and he's going to change us. That's the whole point, to make us like a son or a daughter again. We ask this question each week right now, how goes your walk with Christ? How goes your walk with Christ? You see, the Father has given you everything you need to come home. Some of us are on that route walking back to the Father, and he's running to, to find us. And others of us, we're not quite on the path yet. How goes your walk with Christ? Are you moving closer? Are you purposely walking back home to be reinstated with the family and learn the family rules again? to a loving father. You see, you may find a running father as you walk home because he's faster than we are with his compassion. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are faster. You're greater than we expect. You're more loving than we know. You're more caring. And you do want us to come home. And Lord, this morning, I pray that any who have not been brought into the family yet would hear you call them, would see you running towards them and enter in by the power of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room and at home who feel distant from you. We follow you. We love your son, Jesus, but there are parts of our lives that we continue to shield from you. We continue to eat the pig trot, pig food when you've called us to wake up and come home, we withhold those areas because we're afraid, not knowing what you might do, but Father, you are a loving, compassionate Father who will welcome us home and teach us who we're supposed to be as your children. Father, make us your children today, fully and completely, no longer prodigals, wasting your good stuff, but using it for your kingdom. Amen.